Westinghouse and good old GE. They own networks from CBS to CNBC. They can use them to say whatever they please and put down the opinions of anyone who disagrees. Or stuff about PCBs. What are PCBs? They come from electric power plants built by Westinghouse and GE. They can give you lots of cancer that can hurt your body. But on network TV, you rarely hear anything bad about the nuclear like when Westinghouse was sued for fraud. Which time? When GE made defective bolts, it was an unreported crime. Or when it was boycotted for operating nuclear bomb plants just to squeeze it out. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 13th day of July, 2008. I'd like to remind my listeners that links to all of the documents cited in today's episode can be found at my homepage, CorbettReport.com. Also, listeners are reminded that new editions of our YouTube documentary series can be found on our YouTube channel every Wednesday. To look through our back catalog of YouTube videos, please go to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash CorbettReport. I'd also like to let my listeners know that the Corbett Report podcast will be going on summer hiatus. This episode, episode 50 of the Corbett Report podcast, will be the last one until mid-August. I'd like to reassure my listeners that this hiatus is not being used for fun in the sun or vacation time. In fact, I'm currently working on an info bomb that has the potential to have a great effect in the info war. So I'll need to use this four-week hiatus of the Corbett Report podcast to work on this new project. I won't release the details of this project yet, but hopefully over the next few weeks you'll start to see interviews and articles appearing on the Corbett Report homepage that might give you a clue as to what I'm developing. So please continue to visit the Corbett Report homepage during the podcast's hiatus. Also, I plan on continuing the YouTube documentary series during this hiatus, as usual. So again, every Wednesday, please look for a new YouTube documentary from The Corbett Report. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Our first real news story today comes from the Sydney Morning Herald, the 11th of July, 2008. Youth Day Laws Under the Microscope The New South Wales Solicitor General has agreed a World Youth Day protester could be fined for tying a shoelace under sweeping police powers for the six-day event. And the commercial provisions of the World Youth Day Laws have come under the microscope, with a federal court judge questioning whether they constitute an abuse of power. Justice Catherine Branson and two of her colleagues have expressed their disquiet at the ambiguity of the annoyance laws, which activists have labeled a one-way street designed to silence dissent. No to Pope Coalition members Rachel Evans and Amber Pike took the New South Wales government to court on Friday, arguing that laws which make it a $5,500 offense to annoy or inconvenience pilgrims should be declared unconstitutional. Our second real news story today comes from the Washington Times, 
Editorial, Obama, FISA, and the Left, July 12, 2008. The Senate's passage this week of legislation renewing the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, while granting retroactive immunity to telecommunications firms, is a victory for common sense. It ensures that U.S. intelligence agencies are not deprived of the invaluable assistance of telecommunications companies in monitoring foreign terrorists. The bill, which passed the Senate by an overwhelming 68-29 to 29 vote, provides retroactive liability protection for telecommunications companies who assisted the federal government's terrorist surveillance efforts after September 11th. And it ensures that the United States will continue to be able to monitor newly discovered foreign terrorist cells without first obtaining judicial approval. The lion's share of the credit belongs to National Intelligence Director Mike McConnell and lawmakers like Senator Kit Bond, Missouri Republican, and ranking member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. The two fought tirelessly to ensure that U.S. intelligence agencies would be able to prevent future attacks on the United States. Our final story comes from BBC News, 10th of July, 2008. Mum's police check for school run. A mother has been told she cannot travel to school with her severely epileptic son because she has not been police checked. Jane Jones of Aberfan near Merthyr Tydfil used to travel with her son Alex, 14, in the council-provided taxi when she feared he may have a fit. But Merthyr Tydfil Council has told her this must stop until she has undergone a criminal records bureau check. The council said this was a standard requirement for escorting children. Mrs. Jones, 41, who is Alex's full-time carer, said, I still don't understand why being his parent and being trained to use his drugs, I'm not allowed in the taxi. I would be in no contact with any children other than my own child. It would be a case of me going to school and catching a bus home, and that's it. I really don't understand it. Mrs. Jones said she was in the process of being CRB checked, but was not allowed to travel with her son until it had been completed. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 50 of the Corbett Report. The C word. No, not that C word. This one. What is your belief system? You think that, that the government planned 9-11? Do you buy into these bizarre conspiracies? Very vocal 9-11 conspiracy theorist group erupted into the studio. Okay, you don't have to buy anything. You're American. You want to be a nut, you can be a nut. And you are a nut. Because in order for any conspiracy of this magnitude to take place, thousands of Americans would have to buy into it, would have to know about it, and would have to keep their mouth shut about it. That's never going to happen. You're like the guys who think that the space aliens kidnapped Elvis or something like that. That's, the, that's where you are. That was University of Wisconsin professor Kevin Barrett, who has recently drawn criticism for plans to teach an Islamic studies course next fall that will incorporate conspiracy theories that the U.S. government was involved in the events of September 11. I should say that you know, I'm pretty isolated on this in, in, in the West. I mean, the, a large part of the left completely disagrees on this and has all kind of elaborate conspiracy theories and, you know, about how it happened and why it happened and so on. But I think they're just, uh, first of all, I, I think it's completely wrong, but also I think it's diverting people away from serious issues. 
I mean, it just, it just doesn't make any... I mean, even if it were true, which is extremely unlikely, who cares? I mean, it doesn't have any significance. Well, I think it's self-evident when you have the likes of Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity sharing the same nomenclature with Noam Chomsky. You have a very interesting type of put-down phrase being deployed, one that bears further looking into. Of course, everyone who's ever tried to raise any of the issues frequently dealt with by the Corbett Report in their daily conversations has probably seen the following scene unfold. Friend 1. Hey, did you hear that the man who funded the 9-11 hijackers was actually meeting with the heads of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees on the morning of 9-11? Friend 2. Oh, that's just conspiracy theory. Friend 1. No, it's right here. I have the Washington Times article. I have the Wall Street Journal article. It's right in these articles. You can read it for yourself. Friend 2. Why would I waste my time? That's just conspiracy theory. Friend 1. Well, how about this article? It's from the Department of Defense. On September 10th, 2001, Donald Rumsfeld declared a new war. A war on bureaucracy, because apparently the Pentagon had lost $2.3 trillion dollars. And he announced it on the day before 9-11. And one of the offices that was actually hit at the Pentagon on the morning of 9-11 was the budget analyst office that was working on finding where that $2.3 trillion went. I mean, that's actually the same size as the entire annual federal government budget in the same year. I mean, that's incredible. Friend 2. No, that's just conspiracy theory. Friend 1. But... Did you see E. Howard Hunt's deathbed confession that he was part of the plot to assassinate John F. Kennedy and that the plot went all the way up to Lyndon Baines Johnson and was orchestrated by the CIA? Friend 2. You're just a conspiracy wacko. I'm going to stop talking to you now. It's self-evident that this phrase is designed to simply stop conversation from proceeding into areas that the person who's listening finds uncomfortable. It has nothing to do with the evidence that's being provided. In fact, it's a way of stopping people from presenting evidence. It's a rather bizarre way for a conversation to proceed when you really start to examine it at a verbal level. One clear example detailing just how ridiculous this manipulation of language can be comes from famed scholar, writer, researcher, and author Michael Parenti. He gave a talk about the JFK assassination and what it tells us about the gangster nature of the state at Berkeley, California, on the 30th anniversary of the JFK assassination in November 1993. And what it is so compelling about the JFK assassination is how nakedly the gangster nature of the state is revealed. It is an awakening. And to know the truth about the JFK assassination is to create a delegitimating force that calls into question the entire state system and the entire social order it represents. And this is why for 30 years, the mainstream press has suppressed or dismissed out of hand the findings about JFK's death. The findings of independent investigators like Peter Dale Scott, Harold Weisberg, Carl Oglesby, Mark Lane, Anthony Summers, Philip Melanson, Jim Garrison, Cyril Wecht, and dozens and dozens of others. They're called assassination buffs. They're not buffs. Even that word is a limiting and marginalizing and diminishing term. A buff is a kind of a hobby pursuer, you see. 
It's a kind of a, 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 a quirky person who follows quirky little interests. Would you talk about Holocaust buffs? Would you? No. They are serious investigators of a very serious crime, which leads to all sorts of serious understandings about the criminal nature of the state. Now, obviously, that's a fairly humorous example of the way words can be manipulated to get us to think of events in a certain manner. Even before we start to examine the evidence of those events, we've already switched our mind into a certain frame of reference from which it becomes impossible to take anything seriously. Oh, you're an assassination buff. Well, hmm, I can't trust what you say. Therefore, I should trust the Warren Commission. Phrases like assassination buff or conspiracy theorist or conspiracy nut or conspiracy wacko are effective precisely because they get us to stop thinking critically, to stop attempting to make sense of things that we see unfolding before us, and simply allow the experts to tell us exactly what to believe on this matter. And for those Chomsky acolytes out there who continue to worship this man and everything he says, that is exactly what he is saying to you. He is saying, stop thinking about these matters for yourself, because the experts will decide on them and tell you what to think. And even if it's true, it's not important. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. Well, clearly this is an incredibly important weapon, which all info warriors must understand from the inside out, in order to understand how to combat it when it's deployed against us in the field. And it's also important to note that this weapon is not just deployed by our enemies, but also by the great sleeping masses who have no idea about the types of information they are not being fed by the controlled corporate media. It's always a question of how to bring this up to people like that without invoking the great conspiracy theorist phrase. To get a better understanding of this phrase, where it came from, how it's used, and how best to combat it, I recently talked to Barry Zwicker in Toronto, Canada. Barry Zwicker is an award-winning journalist, documentary producer, political activist, and media critic who has been working in print media and in television for close to 60 years. He's known as one of the first 9-11 truth activists, having gone public with his doubts about the official government story about the events of 9-11 on national TV in Canada in January 2002. His work in the 9-11 truth activist field includes the documentary The Great Conspiracy and the book Towers of Deception, the media cover-up of 9-11. He has spoken at length and with some eloquence about this term conspiracy theorist and its origins at such venues as the 9-11 Truth Conference in Vancouver, Canada last year. I began our wide-ranging conversation by asking Barry Zwicker, about this term, conspiracy theorist, and how it's used as a psychological warfare weapon. Language, quite often, um, in the lives of most people, is kind of an invisible thing. In other words, we just use language uh, largely without thinking. And uh, unless uh, you've gone to university or you've studied semantics, uh, you uh, you may not appreciate the incredible power of language. It's like uh, fit, uh, it's like Marshall McLuhan said, we don't know who, who invented water, but we know it wasn't a fish, <laughs> because the fish would just be unaware of water because it's just so used to it. 
And uh, similarly, language, uh, each word, well, not each word, uh, but many words uh, actually carry uh, powerful images with them. The the word, uh, a given word, uh, take conspiracy, uh, has images. If you if you sort of explore your mind, uh, you'll see that the part of your brain that deals with words, say conspiracy, uh, links up with uh, your emotional nervous system. Uh, might give you a little feeling of fear, uh, for instance. And uh, it also links up with the with the back part of the brain where images are uh, processed so that you might get a little flicker of an image of three or four people bent together uh, in, at the back of a room whispering to each other. And, and this is all uh, this is all in the word conspiracy. And so it's a powerful thing. And and this is why those of us concerned about uh, language and media uh, performance uh, are, are want to deconstruct such words to stop them in their tracks uh, to analyze them so that we can recognize the power in them and uh, and then by recognizing the power in them and find out is that power legitimate or illegitimate uh, for instance we use the word love um, it doesn't usually cause much harm we know there are many kinds of love uh, there's love of God, there's sexual love, there's brotherly, sisterly love and everything. But generally, the word love isn't too problematical. But boy, the word conspiracy is. Uh, and then if you uh, enlarge that to examine in specific, specifically the term conspiracy theorist, uh, you find that it's a word, that, a, a phrase that is very, very frequently encountered. I, I would dare say that each person who hears this uh, is well familiar with the phrase. And not only that, but the way that it's used 99 times out of 100 uh, is in a very pejorative sense, a very negative sense. It is uh, used uh, as a put-down, as, as in the sentence. And the, I'm glad this is an audio interview because, because the tone uh, matters a lot. It would be, well, you're not one of those conspiracy theorists, are you? And uh, the person practically rolls their eyes when they say that and then looks at you as if you're from Mars. Uh, or, of course, they're the more muscular cousins, uh, such as conspiracy nut and conspiracy wacko. And then uh, uh, another uh, 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 synonyms that are frequently heard are, you know, a tin hat wearer or a person with aluminum foil on their head or a member of the Grassy Knoll Society, which refers back to the JFK assassination. Now, the, 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 this is all put-down territory. And uh, where, uh, phrases like that are called thought stoppers. And they're meant to stop thought. They're meant to derail uh, anybody questioning for instance, the official story of how JFK was assassinated. Uh, they're meant to stop questioning of anybody who's going to question uh, how 9-11 happened, who was behind it, and uh, is the official story legitimate. So <clears throat> the, these, these, are, these are very powerful language tools. Now, they turn up in the New York Times. They turn up in novels. They turn up everywhere. I mean, if, if I were to collect all the examples of uh, the use of the term conspiracy theorist, uh, conspiracy theory, conspiracy nut, 
conspiracy wacko that I've encountered, I, I'd practically be able to fill this room uh, with clippings and so on. So on. And uh, in the chapter I wrote on this subject for a book uh, published in Italian uh, not so long ago, a book called Zero, uh, which has a companion DVD, um, I noted that the uh, CIA deliberately seeded this phrase into the language uh, back in the late 60s when skepticism about the Warren Kish Commission report was growing. Uh, the, 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 the term itself goes, goes back. I don't have the article right with me. Maybe James does, and he can actually tell me what was in my article. But I believe the word was first used in the in, uh, late 1800s or something like that and and uh, uh, as a phrase but if i could just say a little more about it uh about deconstructing it first of all no one should ever uh accept uh the label conspiracy theorist uh as it's used 99% of the time as a put down uh we should always immediately reject and confront the person who's using that phrase in that way uh, we should combatively uh, not let them get away with it. We should interrupt them in mid-sentence as soon as they've used the phrase. And we should point out that conspiracy is, is a perfectly good word, that there are conspiracies, large and small, uh, literally almost every day in your local newspaper, uh, at least in major newspapers, you can find reports of charges of conspiracy being laid against individuals, conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to commit fraud, and so on. Um, Martha Stewart was convicted on conspiracy charges that had to do with evading income tax. Uh, it, it's very common, and it's, it's a charge, it's th that is the charge of conspiracy in the criminal code of almost every country, that ev every country as far as I know, um, and the reason being that, it, that it's a very important crime. Uh, the crime of conspiracy is when two or more people uh, communicate together for the purpose of committing a crime and take at least one step toward committing that crime. Now, obviously, this happens a lot. I mean, how many crimes are not planned? There may be some that are just passed by crimes where some kid is passing by a car and just on a spur of the moment decides to smash in the window and steal the stereo. Okay, so there was, that was, there was no conspiracy. There was just the crime. But most important crimes like bank robberies and uh, starting wars and so forth involve people getting together in secret and planning the crime. Bang, there's your conspiracy. So I, I don't need to go on more about the, the, the validity of the word conspiracy and what it represents. It's very, very important. Now then, the other word in the phrase is theory. Now, not only is there nothing wrong with holding theories, holding a theory, or looking at theories, or examining theories, or call them hypotheses, you know, or scenarios, uh, or, or in the more uh, human sense, hunches, as detectives have hunches about, you know, who killed the who, who killed the person whose body is lying there, uh, and and uh, so so. Uh, but it's not only that that it, there's nothing wrong with it, but but it's that is that we engage in theorizing all the time.
and uh, and science proceeds largely on a platform of theories being created, formed, manufactured, fabricated, if you will, just out of the heads of scientists that could best explain a set of circumstances or a series of data or evidence. And so it's a matter of recognizing a pattern in the evidence. Uh, in the case of a murder, you know, there's a gun and and there's a, some blood and there's a bullet casing and so on and uh, then you and then the, the, the detect, detectives find out did the did the victim have enemies and it turns out the victim had three enemies and uh, was anyone left seen fleeing the scene and it turns out somebody in a green coat was and so on and then they say well it looks like this number three guy who always wore a green coat and owns a gun it looks like our theory is that he's the top suspect. This happens all the time. And in science, of course, uh, it's, it's even more important because, uh, because scientists, in a very dispassionate way, they look at uh, evidence and then they say, well, it looks like the best theory to explain this evidence would be, would be theory A. And then all the scientists go back to their drawing boards and they get more evidence and so on. And when they get more evidence, then they, and they say, no, you know what? Series A doesn't explain this fact. Uh, th a theory A, that is, theory A could not be true because just of this one fact, it just doesn't fit theory A. So, well, then they come up with theory B. And and uh, these this is a, a a terrific way of proceeding. It's called the scientific method. It's the best way we know of of trying to reach truth. You know, that's a big big word, truth. And in so, in one way, every theory remains a theory. We, uh, we you know, it's a theory that that the Earth. Uh, uh, goes around the sun and always will. Well, maybe if we go off orbit, that theory will then have to be replaced by another one that says every uh, three billion years, you know, we leave orbit. So, so, uh, so, a conspiracy theory is simply a theory that there is a conspiracy. Now, we know there are huge numbers of conspiracies, and a lot of them are top-notch conspiracies, such as the conspiracy to kill JFK. And this is why the CIA, which was involved in killing JFK, uh, its propaganda arm came up with the idea of asking all its media assets, people who are publishers and uh, executives of TV stations back in the late 60s, and people who were book reviewers, uh, to begin calling people who questioned uh, the Warren Commission findings about the lone gunman, to begin calling them conspiracy theorists. And uh, I, I'll, I'll say this because... James is hardly getting a, a chance here to ask a question, but uh, but a, a very interesting aspect uh, of the term conspiracy theorist, used in a put-down way as a thought stopper, is that it protects actual conspiracists, doesn't it? I mean, you're not even supposed to think that they exist, uh, and uh, and so it's a very very protective device for the people who are engaged in conspiring to do really evil things. And of course they would trot that out. And anybody who buys it is actually helping them. You know, whether you know it or not, as long as you use that term conspiracy theorist, you're actually uh, strengthening this, uh, this armor, um, this, this, uh, this protective device that true conspiracists are using. 
Again, the full audio of that interview is available from the homepage CorbettReport.com. Please go there and listen to the interview in its entirety, as Mr. Zwicker has a lot more to say on this subject, and his conversation is quite interesting. Now, in that excerpt, Mr. Zwicker made a number of important points, one of them being the distinction between conspiracy theory as a normative descriptive term and conspiracy theory as a pejorative. In the normative sense, Conspiracy theory simply refers to a theory about a number of people conspiring to commit a crime. Now, obviously, this happens all the time, and we wouldn't dismiss, for example, a detective making a conspiracy theory about a crime that he's investigating, because, in effect, that's his job. How, then, does this type of term become such an effective thought-stopper, as Barry Zwicker puts it? Part of the answer to that can be the way that this term acts on an emotional level to get people to react without even thinking about what's being said. A perfect example of that comes from this article, The Media Hounds Unleashed on Ron Paul, from Op-Ed News from December 29, 2007. This article reads in part, quote, When Bill Clinton was first running for president, he had a revolutionary challenger in the Democratic primary named Jerry Brown. Brown had been the former governor of California, as well as the state chair of the California Democratic Party. He had been revolutionary, pushing hard for labor rights for farm workers to protect them from agri-industrial poisons. He'd funded those large wind energy projects along the length of California, and had introduced satellite conference calls to California government. The corporate interests he threatened needed to divorce this man of the people, this man of vision, from the people he served so well. So, they called him Governor Moonbeam. The name caught on. What it was in reference to, although few in the media or public looked beyond that funny name as they laughed at Brown, was Brown's idea of using satellite phone technology for meetings. Rather than having state legislators fly back to Sacramento every time they needed to meet, they could use the new technology and save time, energy, etc. Of course, today, everyone, all companies, use this technology, and it was brilliant back then. But Governor Moonbeam was the label some bright boys hired by the corporate powers slapped Brown with. It made people laugh at him. It worked. End quote. Again, another example of how these humorous terms like Governor Moonbeam or assassination buff can be used to dismiss someone's ideas without even taking them into account. Again, this is a remarkable piece of doublethink. I don't know what you're talking about, but you are wrong. Of course, even getting people to understand that is something of a problem. Now, one of the other important points that Barry Zwicker made in that interview extract is that the term conspiracy theorist, used as a pejorative, a put-down phrase, a thought-stopper, really only serves to benefit actual conspirators. The idea that any conspiracy theory is a priori without even looking at the evidence wrong cannot help but benefit those people who actually conspire to commit crimes. Because, of course, nobody can conspire to commit crimes. In fact, this phrase is so effective at getting people to stop questioning events like 9-11 that those of more cynical nature might even think that this term was first embedded in the popular culture by the very types of people who commit these types of crimes. But perhaps that would be 
conspiracy theory. And if that is a conspiracy theory, then one of the pieces of evidence to back that up, as Barry Zwicker brought up in our interview and as he's brought up in many of his other talks, is a document known as CIA Document Number 1035-960. Now that document can be found online, and again, please go to CorbettReport.com and look in the documentation list of today's episode to find the direct link to this document, which is under the headline, CIA Instructions to Media Assets. This article reads, quote, This document caused quite a stir when it was discovered in 1977, dated 4167, and marked destroy when no longer needed, this document is a stunning testimony to how concerned the CIA was over investigations into the Kennedy assassination. Emphasis has been added to facilitate scanning. CIA document number 1035-960 marked psych for presumably psychological warfare operations in the division CS, the clandestine service, sometimes known as the Dirty Tricks Department. Re, concerning criticism of the Warren Report. 1. Our concern. From the day of President Kennedy's assassination on, there has been speculation about the responsibility for his murder. Although this was stemmed for a time by the Warren Commission Report, which appeared at the end of September 1964, various writers have now had time to scan the Commission's published report and documents for new pretexts for questioning, and there has been a new wave of books and articles criticizing the Commission's findings. In most cases, the critics have speculated as to the existence of some kind of conspiracy, and often they have implied that the Commission itself was involved. Presumably as a result of the increasing challenge to the Warren Commission's report, a public opinion poll recently indicated that 46% of the American public did not think that Oswald acted alone, while more than half of those polled thought that the Commission had left some questions unresolved. Doubtless polls abroad would show similar, or possibly more adverse, results. 2. This trend of opinion is a matter of concern to the U.S. government, including our organization. The members of the Warren Commission were naturally chosen for their integrity, experience, and prominence. They represented both major parties, and they and their staff were deliberately drawn from all sections of the country. Just because of the standing of the commissioners, efforts to impugn their rectitude and wisdom tend to cast doubt on the whole leadership of American society. Moreover, there seems to be an increasing tendency to hint that President Johnson himself, as the one person who might be said to have benefited, was in some way responsible for the assassination. Innuendo of such seriousness affects not only the individual concerned, but also the whole reputation of the American government. Our organization itself is directly involved. Among other facts, we contributed information to the investigation. Conspiracy theories have frequently thrown suspicion on our organization, for example by falsely alleging that Lee Harvey Oswald worked for us. The aim of this dispatch is to provide material countering and discrediting the claims of the conspiracy theorists so as to inhibit the circulation of such claims in other countries. End quote. Now you can go on and read the rest of CIA document 1035-960, and I recommend that you do. It would be important to note that this document was directly preceded by a marked rise in the use of the term conspiracy theory, or conspiracy theorist, to note an idea or a person that's not even worth considering because it's so far out there. 
Now, again, for my incredulous listeners out there, it's important to note that the idea that the CIA was implanting terms like conspiracy theorist in the popular culture through the corporate controlled media is not in and of itself a conspiracy theory in the pejorative sense, but a conspiracy theory in the normative sense. And that's based on findings like the findings of the Church Commission, which revealed the existence of Operation Mockingbird. Again, I encourage you to do your own research on Operation Mockingbird, but basically it was declassified and admitted that the CIA was running an operation to place agents in places of influence in the corporate-controlled media in order to direct foreign policy of the United States and to plant stories, including black propaganda, in the United States domestic media outlets. For people who don't see how important this story is, I would suggest you go and read an article by Carl Bernstein, who in 1977, shortly after the Church Committee hearings, released a meticulously researched 25,000-word report in Rolling Stone magazine called The CIA and the Media. And again, I suggest you read that in its entirety to find out about some of the high-level agents that the CIA had in place in the mid-20th century working for them. And to think that simply because Operation Mockingbird was exposed, that it no longer exists, would be, shall we say, naive. So it's obvious that this is a psychological warfare term, as denoted by the psych label on the CIA document 1035-960. But then the question becomes, if this is a psychological warfare implement, what term could be used to more accurately describe, without the emotional baggage, the types of theories pervaded by, for example, the Corbett Report. When we're looking at a systematic use of conspiracy in the normative sense, by people in positions of power to plot crimes, and then try to cover that up in the controlled corporate media, what is going on here? And how can we describe a system in which black operations run by intelligence agencies can operate with impunity, never being exposed in the controlled corporate media, because that media is itself infested with intelligence operatives. What do we call that type of system, and how do we usefully examine that type of system without employing the conspiracy theorist baggage? Well, some of my listeners might be surprised to find that there is not only a term to describe this, but an entire field of academic research. One of the progenitors of this term was Peter Dale Scott, a Canadian poet, English professor, and diplomat who taught for many years at UC Berkeley. Peter Dale Scott has written at length about the deep state and deep politics, which is to say the myriad processes behind the surface politics which is pervaded in the corporate-controlled media, which really dictate what is happening at the surface level. An associated term with deep politics is parapolitics, or an examination of the way in which covert operations and secret meetings form an important part of public policy formation of most governments. This is now an important field of academic research, and one that's gaining prominence, I wanted to find out more about this term, parapolitics, so I put the question to Stephen Dorrell, who was featured in last week's episode of the Corbett Report. Again, Stephen Dorrell is a noted academic researcher and author who has written books on MI6 and some of their covert operations around the world. 
In our conversation, I asked Stephen Dorrell about the term parapolitics, its origin, and its scope of use. Parapolitics was a term invented and developed by Peter Dale Scott, who's a professor at Berkeley University. He'd been looking at uh, the Vietnam War, and he was interested in the crossover between intelligence agencies and domestic and foreign policy. And previously, intelligence agencies have been regarded as kind of a separate unit, self-enclosed, self-contained, um, and that the politicians drew intelligence from it, but they didn't, there wasn't really a crossover. So he looked, began to look at that, and the obvious climax of that, really, was Watergate, where you saw the involvement of intelligence personnel in domestic affairs. And, and parapolitics kind of developed around that period. And originally I'd looked at American politics, I'm very interested in American politics, probably knew more about it than I did about British politics. But in the early 80s, uh, I decided that this was a bit silly and really should be looking at British politics. And the involvement of British intelligence, MI5, MI6, etc., and were they involved in any way in uh, domestic and foreign affairs here. And it soon became pretty clear that they were. And I started to look at uh, the 70s and the alleged plots against Harold Wilson, the British Prime Minister. And you immediately saw the role of key intelligence personnel in that plot, both people within the services, but also people who had left, retired, but were still working. And also... Um, private groups, security companies, think tanks, etc., which involved in intelligence personnel. So it's developed quite a lot now, and what you see is that that old idea of these separate self-contained agencies uh, isn't true, and I tend to see things in terms of factions, that uh, the CIA is a massive organization, bigger than any other intelligence agency in the world, it isn't just one body. It is made up of different areas, and often within these different areas you might see different factions. The most um, obvious one in the past was probably the area of counterintelligence where you saw a faction around James Angleton, uh, which was extremely right-winged, paranoid, and very, very anti-communist. And there have been more liberal elements within the, the CIA opposed to that. Certainly, I think it, it's valuable to look at the factions within the intelligence agencies and how they might be playing against each other as much as working with each other. And in that regard, uh, could you speak to the idea of compartmentalization within intelligence agencies and how agents might not even be aware of other parts of their own agency? I think that's a really good point. Um, Intelligence as an area for study has become very big. It's one of those, quote, sexy areas that um, has developed quite a lot and, and is very popular. Uh, but they still tend to treat it very much like you were studying diplomacy, State Department or whatever. And there's um, quite correctly a reliance on the documents, but intelligence isn't like diplomacy. Um, a lot of it is carried out in corridors. There's very little actually um, put on record. And from what we know of intelligence records, often they are shaped in the knowledge that in somebody like me in 20, 50 years is going to read them. 
and so they are already shaped with that kind of view for public consumption. And within the agencies, they are very calm, uh, very much in these discrete little units, uh, com compartments, whereby for security reasons one section won't know what another section is doing. Um, but that creates within these organizations this high level of secrecy which is often counterproductive and they don't talk to one another. And again, you can see that very clearly we, with the Angleton period. We know that uh, some sections were talking to the others, and within those sections they kept uh, private files which weren't available to other people, and Angleton even had kind of third files secretly uh, stashed away in his own safe, which he didn't show even to some of his closest colleagues. Um, so it's sometimes very difficult to get a view of an intelligence agency when it gets to that size of the CIA, because there isn't simply one view that is coming out of it. Um, Angleton was so powerful that he was able to impose his own view of the world on different areas of the agency's work. Again, Stephen Dorrell is an excellent researcher and author, and our wide-ranging conversation touched on a number of topics about which he is very knowledgeable, so I would again commend that interview to my listeners. Please go to the Corbett Report homepage and click on the Interviews tab to find the interview with Stephen Dorrell. Now, the idea of the deep state, deep politics, and parapolitics is, of course, extremely fascinating. And for those serious researchers who are interested in the way that covert operations have an effect on public policy, it's some valuable nomenclature for starting to examine those issues. However, for those who are confronted with the C word when trying to relate some of this information, perhaps going into a lengthy explanation of parapolitics and why it's a better term to use might be a bit unrealistic. What then is the best method for dealing with people who insist on using this C word? Well, Barry Zwicker advises us to stop our interlocutor as soon as we hear that word escaping their lips, and to explain in rational terms why that is a thought-stopping phrase, and why it should not be used. That is, of course, the most noble method, but I fear it places too much faith in the rationality of the people that we're talking to. My own preferred method is to play with the normative sense of that term by first admitting that, yes, I am a conspiracy theorist for believing that rogue elements of the U.S. government and intelligence agencies helped commit the 9-11 attacks, but then pointing out that, yes, you are a conspiracy theorist for believing that Osama bin Laden was a conspirator in the 9-11 attacks. Whether or not this is a fruitful way for continuing a conversation with someone, I'll leave you to decide for yourself. But perhaps a third method is suggested by Michael Parenti, who in his talk on the 30th anniversary of the JFK assassination does a beautiful job of pointing out the utter absurdity of the conspiracy theorist phrase by turning it around and using humor. Damage control. You know, back in 1978, the House Select Committee reported, in fact, after an investigation, that there was more than one assassin shooting Kennedy. And there, therefore, was a conspiracy. In response, the Washington Post immediately editorialized in 1978, quote, Could it have been some other malcontent whom Mr. Oswald met casually? <laughs> it gets better. It gets better. Wait. Could not as many as three or four societal outcasts 
with no ties to any one organization, have developed in some spontaneous way a common determination to express their alienation in the killing of President Kennedy. It is possible that two persons acting independently attempted to shoot the president at the very same time. It is possible. It's not at all likely. So sometimes those who deny conspiracies create the most convoluted fantasies of all. That's it for today. I'd like to remind my listeners that the Corbett Report podcast will be going on summer hiatus, and episode 51 will be coming to you in mid-August. In the meantime, if you're a new listener of the Corbett Report podcast, please use this summer hiatus to download and listen to some of our previous episodes of the Corbett Report. For regular listeners of the Corbett Report podcast, please use this time to go through some of our interviews and articles. Thank you once again for joining me, and join me again in mid-August for the continuation of the Corbett Report podcast. We are in the middle of the greatest deception the world has ever seen. Deception. The magnitude of this deception is almost incomprehensible. There is a global attempt to establish a one-world government dictatorship. One-world government. A world in which... There would be no borders. One day I woke up on a beautiful 4th of July, except the chemtrails that I see up in the sky. When 95% of the globe's in mental oppression, from the countless decades of all the global deception. Since the 18th century, 1763, the Illuminati set up a plot to eventually establish world order. No matter the cost, no matter the time, no matter how many lives is lost, and the innocence arrested, the Hegelian dialectic is the method that they use to suppress with. That said you need conflict to have progress Countless corrupt men and women make up our Congress Like Senator Owen Hatch coming out of the closet Trying to put away laws, a posse comitatus You all of us across the globe need to be conscious Before the night falls upon us, open up your eyes We will have world government whether you like it or not The only question is whether that government will be achieved by conquest or by consent So sometimes those who deny conspiracies create the most convoluted fantasies of all.